Splashdown. From Tranquility Base to Taurus Litro to the tranquil waters of the Pacific, the latest chapter of NASA's journey to the moon comes to a close. Orion, back on Earth. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with yet another hour of geeky news, views, reviews and stuff. We've got a packed show for you this evening. As you heard, the Orion capsule, which was the only part of the Artemis 1 mission to return to Earth, has made it. Splashed down in the Pacific on Monday and everything was A-OK. Artemis 1 mission can be declared a 100% Success. Obviously, we are still waiting for the results of the various science experiments, the anti-radiation vests and all the other stuff that was being carried aboard Orion. But this mission is done and it went perfectly. So we can now start looking towards Artemis 2 and we will come back to the Artemis program, what's been going on with Artemis 1 and what we're now looking forward to later in the show. But first, let's take a look at this week's News in Geek. And we'll start with comics because, well, I like comics. Although not all the news is good this week. There is a bit of a rumbling going on in the comics community because like, well, like everybody else, really, comics creators are struggling a little bit. I mean, it is that time of year when the heating has to go on and you've got Christmas presents to buy and you throw in the cost of living issues that we're having right now. And money, money's tight. And for a lot of comics creators, it is tighter than it should be. You see, an awful lot of the comics that you will buy from your local comic shop, or anywhere else for that matter, are written and illustrated by freelancers. That is to say, these are people who are not on salary. They are paid per piece of work they do. Depending on the contract, that might be uh, a particular amount per book, a particular amount per page, a particular amount per word, although per word contracts are unusual in comics for, well, what I hope are fairly obvious reasons. But when the job is completed, they have to submit an invoice and wait for that invoice to be paid. They're not on salary. They do not get a paycheck at the end of every month. Which is fine. Lots of people do freelance work. I do freelance work. The difference is I submit an invoice at the end of every month and I am paid within a week. The company that I do most of my writing for is very good like that. However, that is not often the case in comics. It is the case that in comics, sometimes creators are kept waiting for literally months before they see a return on work that they have done. Often a book can have been published and sold out for months before the creators get paid. Now, this is problematic on several levels. Obviously, it's a real problem if you are the the, the creator who is waiting for their money. But ethically, it's not particularly good. And it is a thing that has been a thing in comics for a very long time. The recent kerfuffle about this began on Twitter, because of course it did. Everything begins on Twitter. When a creator called Zach Thompson 
tweeted out that he'd had a couple of books fall apart on him and he was still waiting to be paid. When I say a couple of books, not physical books falling apart. I mean, the, the, the job had fallen apart and he was still waiting to be paid for work that had been published. Now, he did not name and shame, I suspect, because he is fairly keen to get paid at some point and doesn't want to rock the boat too much. However, other people have, most notably the uh, artist Alex DeCampi, who called out Aftershock Comics in particular, who she says owes friends of hers literally tens of thousands of dollars in unpaid invoices and calls on them to either pay their people or declare bankruptcy. Now, I was saddened to read that, not just because I don't like it when people who make the things I like don't get paid, but I've been a fan of Aftershock for a very long time. Well, I say a very long time, since Aftershock has been a thing. It's only been around for five or six years or so. But they have been behind some of my very favourite books of the last five years. Uh, Animosity is one of theirs, uh, which I've recommended many times. Uh, not on this show, because it's not been out for a while, but certainly on Geeks of the Gates back in those days. Recommended Animosity quite a lot. Jack Thompson's comic, Brother of All Men, that has been recommended here too. So, you know, I like this company. I like what they do. I like their, their editorial standpoint. But if they are not paying their people, that is a serious problem. If you can't pay your staff, then you are not a business. I, I take a very hard line on this. I am an employer myself, and my first responsibility is to pay my staff. That's more important than paying my creditors, my you know the people who supply me with stuff, although that is the second most important responsibility I have. That's certainly more important than me getting paid. And the day I can't afford to pay my staff, that's the day Destination Venus goes from being a business to a hobby. And at that point, I have to acknowledge I can't afford staff. And maybe I can't afford the hobby. I hope, I really, really hope that that's not where Aftershock is. They've been called out for this before, back in 2019. And they gave assurances at that time that the issues were resolved. Well, apparently not. I will watch this one with interest and concern. I do not want to see an independent publishing house as good as Aftershock go under. But if they aren't making the money they need to make to pay for the books they're putting out, then maybe maybe they are just a hobby outfit. And if that's the case, well, people need to know. Because creators, artists and writers cannot afford to do work if they're not getting paid. Because while ever they're doing a job that they're not going to get paid for, that's time they can't spend doing work they will get paid for. And these are people with families and mortgages and bills. A subject that we will return to when we talk about AI art and indeed AI writing, because that is also a thing that is beginning to be a thing. Uh, but we'll, 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 we'll leave that for now because it's an unsavoury subject as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, we'll move on and find some more positive news. Shall we do that? So, let's go back to James Gunn being in charge of DC movies because that's still big news. You will remember that last week we, we reported that Hollywood Reporter was saying that Wonder Woman was dead in the water, that 
it didn't look as though Henry Cavill was going to come back as Superman, that Jason Momoa was done as Aquaman, but might be coming back as Lobo, and that there would be no more Black Adam. Well, none of that's resolved, because James Gunn remains tight-lipped. He has been on Twitter to urge people to be, and I'm quoting now, patient. And do you know what? The man has a point. DC is going to make its announcement when it's time for DC to make its announcement. And it ain't going to do it sooner just because we're all being fans and whining about the fact that we don't know what's happening. We don't need to know what's happening. They'll tell us eventually. It's fine. What he has said, without actually naming Henry Clavel by, you know, sort of directly, is that Superman is incredibly important, if not the most important consideration, and that Green Lantern is also important. Although he did say that anyone who was looking forward to Ryan Reynolds coming back as Hal Jordan was going to have a long wait, or worse to that effect, which, you know, I think even Ryan Reynolds would say was fair. He did, he did address some fan speculation that the reason Henry Cavill might not be coming back as Superman is that he doesn't like Henry Cavill. He was very clear to say that, first of all, he didn't say that Henry Cavill was not coming back as Superman and that people should be patient for an announcement, but also very clear that he doesn't dislike Henry Cavill and that that's nonsense. In spite of the fact that, as is often the case on Twitter, several people kept telling him that he was wrong and in fact he didn't like Henry Cavill. And, you know, there's only so much of that you can take before you snap at people, which is what James Gunn did. So I can't say I blame him. As I say, he was very clear that everything that he and Safran do at DC Movies is going to be in service of story and in service of the characters that, you know, oh, I say we all love. We all, we DC fans all love, at least. And I honestly don't see what else he owes us. We can wait and find out what's going on. And eventually we will. And we will either be dismayed or delighted. Or possibly both, because that seems to be how it goes with DC these days. Okay, there may be a further news roundup at the end of the show, depending on what breaks between when I'm recording now and when I finish recording. It is time now to move on to... heard in the audio at the top of the show, the Orion capsule that comprised the final part of the Artemis 1 mission has now splashed down in the Pacific Ocean and all is well. But that is not what we're going to talk about first. We will talk about that. But first, something else, something more mysterious, something perhaps more sinister, has also landed. Not by splashing down in the Pacific Ocean, but by landing on the runway at the Kennedy Space Center. I'm talking, of course, about the X-37B. Now, you may not know about the X-37B because the Americans rarely talk about it. They rarely talk about it because it is not operated by NASA. It is not, in fact, operated by any civilian space agency. Indeed, technically, it is not operated by the same agency that it was operated by when it took off. You see, the X-37B has been in orbit around the Earth for 908 days. And when it launched, it was the property and the responsibility 
of the United States Air Force, because this is part of the military arm of the American space program. Not long after the X-37B's mission started, the United States Air Force lost responsibility for activity in space, which was passed to the newly founded Space Force. And so although sitting on the runway at the Kennedy Space Center, it was still bearing USAF markings, it is now a Space Force spacecraft. So what is it? Well, if you imagine a sort of very small space shuttle without any of the crew bits, that's basically it. It's about the size of a smallish fighter jet. And it is clearly uncrewed. Uh, They have not sent people into space in a, 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 a tiny little thing for 908 days. Even the Americans are not that crazy. And there isn't really much else we can tell you. The mission was designated OTV-6, which is Orbital Test Vehicle 6. Officially, that's what the X-37Bs are. They are orbital test vehicles because clearly the Americans are not doing anything military in space. That would be in breach of quite a lot of treaties. Exactly what they're doing is, well, we don't know. We've got no idea what this thing has been doing in space for the last 908 days. It could have been anything. I mean, the the most likely candidates are surveillance uh, or um, mucking about with other people's satellites. Or, you know, genuinely, maybe they were just seeing what happened when you launch one of these things and leave it there for a bit. We've got no way of knowing. But it is interesting. For a start, I, for one, am actually very pleased that, crude or uncrewed, we are still building space planes. Now, okay, this is not for carrying people and, and, and stuff, but I maintain that whatever the muskrat says, wings are the best way to land if you've got an atmosphere to work with. It is significantly safer and significantly more efficient than using propellant in the way that the SpaceX rockets all do. They all land by burning fuel. Now, if you're going to do that, that means you're landing with fuel. And the thing about rocket fuel is that it's really explodey. The space shuttle came down with no fuel at all. It glided, well, I say it glided. It didn't glide well, actually, the space shuttle. Uh, Pilots likened it to flying a brick. But because it wasn't carrying fuel, if there was a problem, explosions were not a thing they had to worry about. Hitting the ground at supersonic speeds, that was a worry. But explosions, not a problem. If you've seen SpaceX rockets go wrong when they land, they just blow up, which is embarrassing if there's nobody aboard and tragic if there is. So space planes for crewed spaceflight, certainly to low Earth Earth orbit, certainly for shuttling. There's a reason they called it the space shuttle between Earth and low Earth orbit. I really do think space planes are still the way to go. I like that there are people still working on this. Uh, Boeing builds the X-37B. Uh, there are, there's also the Europa Clipper, which is also built by a private company, which may be co- coming into service soon. So that's all good. As to the significance of the X-37B's military operations, well, we don't know because we don't know what they are. We do know that China is not a fan. Uh, China's worldview is quite defensive, and they tend to take a dim view of any potential weaponization of anywhere. And so whatever. America's 
intentions with the X-37B are. China is choosing to view them as hostile and is responding accordingly. China also probably is working on a space plane like the X-37B. We don't know that for sure because the Chinese space agency doesn't tell anybody anything about anything. But, you know, people have noticed modifications to launch towers and stuff, which suggest that something a bit space planey might be being launched. So we will see. We will see. I can't really tell you much more about it because we don't know anything else. But it is it is a thing that's happened. And I I thought it was worthy of note. If more information about the X-37B or any other of the US Space Forces activities become available, I will be sure to let you know. But in the meantime, let's move on to the thing that the Americans will talk about. Indeed, if you talk to anybody from NASA, it's quite difficult to get them to shut up about it. And that is the Artemis program. Artemis 1 is down after a successful mission. Everything went, as far as we can tell, according to plan. Everything went like clockwork, and it's all good. This was a test flight, of course. Uh, The idea was to make sure that the equipment was capable of going around the moon and coming back safely. Check, did that. It was also carrying other experiments. We don't know yet what the results of the test on the radiation protection vests was, uh, because we don't have the data from the two mannequins that flew, and I still can't remember the mannequins' names. I could look them up, but that would be professional. Yeah, not going to happen. Uh, and we don't know how Sean the Sheep or Snoopy feel about their experience, but the mission has broken some records. It is the furthest human-capable spacecraft has ever been away from Earth. So the Orion capsule that is part of Artemis 1 went further away from Earth than any of the Apollo modules did, which held the previous record for the furthest away from Earth crew capable spacecraft. People will be flying on Artemis 2, and they will be the people who have been the furthest away from Earth in the whole of human history. Now, that crew is yet to be named. And of course, it'll be a bittersweet mission for them, because just like the crew of Apollo 8, they will be going to the moon. They will be going around the moon. They will not be landing on the moon. And to go that far and not be able to get off the bus must be incredibly frustrating. But it is the necessary next step. Now, that mission is likely to be sometime in 2024, which was the target that Donald Trump set for boots on the moon, which NASA never really believed it could do. But actually getting humans to the moon on that timescale, given where we were when Trump made that announcement, actually genuinely quite impressive. Not quite as impressive as the Apollo program of the 60s, which went from we've only spent people into like low Earth orbit for a little bit to we've put boots on the moon in less than 10 years in the 1960s. But given all the constraints that Artemis has that Apollo didn't, that's impressive. I mean, Apollo had the full backing of the American people, which meant there was the political will to throw whatever money it needed at the problem. A situation that NASA has not enjoyed the benefit of 
since, if we're honest. And it also had the benefit of not having to worry about health and safety quite so much. This was an era when I'm not going to say human life was cheap. I won't ever accept that. But people worried about it less. And I suppose in context, we were, you know, less than 20 years at the start of Apollo. We were less than 20 years after the end of the Second World War, which, you know, tens of thousands of U.S. personnel had been killed in that conflict. We were in the middle, in fact, almost at the beginning for part of Apollo, of the Vietnam War, which, again, was, you know, basically a meat grinder. I mean, again, hundreds of American service personnel were being killed every week in Vietnam in the service of their country. And because Apollo was framed in the same way, it was a, you know, a patriotic effort in the service of America, it, it felt appropriate to take the kinds of risks that NASA simply would not take today. You know, you do not risk the life of an astronaut unless you absolutely have to. And you do everything you can in this modern era to minimise that risk, and that includes not flying. Apollo was much more, well, let's give it a go. You know, we need to get up there. We need to get this done. It's worth the risk. You know, the astronauts themselves would take the view that, you know, if I die trying this, at least we tried. The astronauts of the current generation have the privilege of not living against that cultural backdrop. And so not being of that cultural mindset. The astronauts of the, the current generation, they know the risks. I mean, space is hard and space is dangerous. And astronauts always know that every mission could turn out to be terminal. But they're not gung-ho about it anymore. And nobody is prepared to wantonly risk the life of an astronaut. So it is harder to do things quickly because you don't take the risk. You test and then you test and then you test again. And then just to be sure, you do another test. That's not how it was in Apollo. I mean, the first time... The Saturn V Apollo service module, command module configuration left the Earth. It went round the moon. That was Apollo 8. They had never flown people on a Saturn V rocket before that date. And they just went round the moon. It's clearly not going to do that. They took the time, did an uncrewed mission first. I, I think that's a reasonable thing to do, to be honest. As to what's next, well, there's a lot of development still to do. As I mentioned last week, they still don't have spacesuits that are capable of operating on the moon. The spacesuits they use on the International Space Station simply will not do. They are not durable enough to cope with the lunar surface. They're not really durable enough to cope with gravity because on the ISS, they don't need to be. So that's something that still needs to be developed. We have prototypes, but we don't have production versions yet. They're going to need eventually, maybe not for the first mission, but they're going to need eventually some kind of rover. We don't have that, although, again, that is a prototype. And if we're going to be spending any time at all on the moon, they need to crack the habitation issue. And I don't think they've even decided what they're doing with that yet. I mean, actually spending a lot of time on the moon is a very difficult prospect. There's very high levels of cosmic radiation which you know, people simply cannot live in for very long. If you're going to put something on the surface, it has to endure massive extremes of temperature variation from 
almost absolute zero when it's dark to unbelievably hot when it's in the full glare of the sun. There is no protective atmosphere here at all. So, you know, all of that still needs to be worked out and they haven't worked it out yet. I suspect, actually, one of the first things that humans do on the moon is look for ways of building habitats, maybe underground. There has been quite a lot of speculation at NASA about the possibility of using lava tubes, uh, sort of underground tunnels that used to carry lava back when the moon was um, volcanically active. But, you know, that would need some exploration. So I suspect that's going to be a job for early lunar landing folk. Beyond all of that, we really are still waiting for the results of the various test missions that were flown as part of Artemis 1. So there isn't really anything else to report. Hopefully we'll have some proper timescales for you know when to expect what to happen over the next couple of months. And of course, we will keep you informed. But for now, once again, it's time to move on. Okay, so time to find out about another wonderful woman of science. And this week, we're going to delve into the realms of the cosmos. First, travel back in time with me to Wendover, of all places, in Buckinghamshire. It's May the 10th, 1900. New century struggles to be born. Also born is Cecilia Helena Payne. The daughter of Emma and Edward Payne. He is a barrister, a historian and a musician. She is from a Prussian family uh, and had many distinguished relatives, but she herself was a wife and mother, which in biographies like this tends to be said almost as though, so she didn't do very much. But actually, do you know what? That's a worthy job title, I think, particularly if you're about to raise a child as distinguished as Cecilia Payne. Her early life, Cecilia's early life, um, was fairly unremarkable. Uh, she started school in uh, a private school at Wendover, run by a woman called Elizabeth Edwards, who I can find no other references to. When she was 12, her mother moved to London for the sake of the education of Cecilia's brother, Humphrey. And that is actually spelled H-U-M-F-R-Y, not even kidding. Now, Humphrey Payne later became an archaeologist, and this is actually a pattern that we see in great academic women of previous centuries. Uh, the, the priority for education was given to her brother because he was a boy. And that partly is why we do the wonderful women of science, because women continuously through history have been overlooked. But anyway, uh, she moved to London when she was 12 because they wanted to get a decent education for her brother, Humphrey, who did later become an archaeologist. I can't find any record of him being particularly distinguished, but hey, he did something with his education at least. Cecilia attended St Mary's College in Paddington, uh, and she wasn't allowed, because she was a girl, to study very much in the way of mathematics or science. But in 1918, when she was, well... 18. This gets. I like it when people are born in zero years because it gets really easy to calculate their age. I'd have to do maths on nothing. So when she was 18, in 1918, 
she moved schools and went to St Paul's Girls School. There, she was urged by, and again, not kidding, Gustav Holst, who was the music teacher at the school. And if you don't know who Gustav Holst is, Googling, seriously, come on. Uh, so Gustav Holst was the music teacher at this school, which does tell you, actually, how prestigious the school must have been. Yes, Holst encouraged Cecilia to take up a career in music. So that tells us how good she was at that. Uh, but Cecilia preferred to focus on science. And the following year, in 1919, she won a scholarship, an all-expenses-paid scholarship, to Newnham College, Cambridge, uh, where she initially, at least, read botany, physics and chemistry. But she dumped botany by the end of the first year and focused en exclusively on physics and chemistry. And again, it was at Cambridge where her interest in astronomy was kindled. Uh, she attended a lecture by Arthur Eddington about his 1919 expedition to the island of Principe uh, off the west coast of Africa to observe and photograph the stars near a solar eclipse because uh, he wanted to test Albert Einstein's um, general theory of relativity. She later said of this lecture, direct quote, the result was a complete transformation of my world picture. My world had been so shaken that I experienced something like a very nervous breakdown. So she finished her studies, uh, but it was Cambridge. And therefore, although she completed the course, she was not awarded a degree because Cambridge did not grant degrees to women until 1948. Yeah, you heard me. 1948. Still makes me cross. So Cecilia Payne realised that the only career option open to her with a sort of degree from Cambridge University as a woman was to become a teacher. So she figured, stuff that, and started looking for grants that would enable her to move to the United States, which was more progressive on such matters at this time. Uh, so she was introduced to Harlow Shakespeare. Uh, Shapley, who was the director of Harvard College uh, Observatory, and he had just set up a graduate program in astronomy. So in 1923, she left England, uh, having been funded by a fellowship that was encouraging women to study at the observatory. Now, she was, in fact, only the second woman to be awarded this scholarship. Uh, the first had been uh, Adelaide Ames, uh, who we will probably talk about in a future episode. Uh, and she'd been awarded that in 1922. 1923 was pain. She arrives at the Harvard University Observatory and is persuaded to begin a doctoral dissertation. And so in 1925, she became the first person, not first woman, first person to earn a PhD in astronomy from Radcliffe College of Harvard University. Uh, her thesis was stellar atmospheres. A contribution to the observational study of high temperature and in the reversing layers of stars. Now, what that means is that Payne was able to very accurately relate the spectral classes of stars to their actual temperatures. And she did this by applying what something called ionization theory, which I confess I do not understand, uh, which had been developed by an Indian physicist uh, called... Uh, Megnard Sahar, and I apologise for mispronouncing that because I almost certainly did. Now, what Payne did was show that the variation, which is huge, 
uh, in stellar absorption lines, uh, which is what we look at when we do uh, spectroscopy, uh, was due to the different amounts of ionization at different temperatures and not to different amounts of elements. So she found that silicon and carbon and other common metals seen in the sun spectrum were present in about the same relative amounts as Earth, uh, which was, you know, the accepted belief of the time. And that meant that the stars had approximately the same elemental composition as the Earth. However, she also found that helium and hydrogen were vastly more abundant. Um, I mean, in the case of hydrogen, it's like by factors of like about a million. Her thesis concluded, therefore, that hydrogen was the overwhelming constituent of stars, making hydrogen the most abundant element in the universe. Now, this is something that is taught at basic levels now. If you've done any kind of astronomy course, you will have been told that. But we know that because of Cecilia Payne. So get in, Cecilia Payne. Herself was not one to blow her own trumpet. She actually described her work as spurious. Um, but a few years later, the astronomer Otto Struve described her work as, and I'm quoting now, the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy. So other people, at least, recognised what was going on. Um, now, after her doctorate, Payne studied stars of high luminosity, that's the bright ones, to try and understand the structure of our galaxy, the Milky Way. She later then uh, surveyed all of the stars brighter than the 10th magnitude. Then she moved on to variable stars, making over one and a quarter million observations uh, with her assistance. And that work later was extended, extended to the uh, Magellanic Clouds, uh, which are the huge gas clouds um, that we see in the Milky Way, uh, which added a further two million observations of variable stars. All of that data was used to determine stellar evolution. Uh, she published her conclusions in her second book, The Stars of High Luminosity, which was published in 1930, and uh, demonstrates that while she was a brilliant astronomer, she wasn't all that great at, you know, titles of things. But her work resulted in several published books. Um, obviously, there was The Stars of High Luminosity in 1930, uh, Variable Stars in 1938, Variable Stars and Galactic Structure in 1954. Uh, now, by this time, she was married uh, to another astronomer uh, called Sergei Gaposhkin. Uh, and the work she did with him really was to be the, the basis of the work for the rest of her life. said that the United States was a much more progressive country in terms of yeah, opportunities for women in science at this time. It is, however, the case that the director of the observatory really didn't make any effort to promote her in, in any way at all. Uh, she was actually given the title of um, astronomer, in 1938, uh, Payne herself had to request that her title was changed to Phillips Astronomer, which was an endowed position, which would make her an officer of the university. The only way that Director Shapley of the observatory got that past the Harvard board was by assuring them that officer of university did not make her equivalent to a university professor, in spite of the fact the word professor was in the job title. America was not that much more progressive, is what I'm saying. Uh, she was 
elected as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1943, however. Uh, but her courses, the courses that she taught, were not recorded in the Harvard University catalogue until 1945. <laughs> now, it is the case that in 1954, when a guy called Donald Menzel became the director of Harvard College Observatory, he did try to improve her appointment. And in 1956, she became the first woman to be promoted to full professor from within the, fa the faculty at Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences. She was formally appointed Phillips Professor of Astronomy in 1958. Later, she was appointed to the chair of the Department of Astronomy. She became the first woman to head a department at Harvard. Now, there is a list of really impressive students that came through her department when she was in charge. I'm not going to read it. You can Google it if you like. They won't mean anything to you, I don't think. Except for one, perhaps. Frank Blinkin Drake. Frank Drake of the Drake Equation, which we talked about on this show before. Frank Drake came up with the equation that estimates the number of civilizations that might be existing in a galaxy. And, you know, he's famous for that. He was a brilliant astronomer. She taught him. Now, he's a giant and everybody knows his name. Nobody knows hers. I don't know why. Well, I can guess. So Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin retired from active teaching in 1966 and was subsequently appointed Professor Emerita of Harvard. She continued her research as a member of staff at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, edited journals and books published by the Harvard Observatory for more than 20 years. Um, and so she you know, she worked in the field for the rest of her life, basically. Astronomy for her was a passion. Honestly, her achievements and her influence cannot be overstated. Did I mention she taught Frank Drake? She was also a proper trailblazer and a proper inspiration. She was an exceptional woman. And she was the first woman to be appointed to so many things and to achieve so many things that she made it possible for so many other people to follow in her footsteps. And if that's not a wonderful woman of science, I don't know who is. So talk about Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin, perhaps when you're talking about the composition of stars or just really awesome women. She is truly an inspiration, truly an example of simply not letting people get in the way of what you want to achieve. She just went out and achieved it. In that, I would suggest she's an example to us all. But now it's time to move on. And honestly, we've talked a lot lately about space. What we haven't talked much about is... Science! And although we've not been talking about it, a lot of science has been going on. Yes, some of what I'm about to talk about is probably technically engineering. I'm going to argue that engineering is basically applied science and leave it at that, OK? And we're going to start with actual time travel. Yeah, not kidding. Actual, real time travel. OK, so it's only light, but it's still time travel. It's a world first. Physicists have actually moved light back and forth in time simultaneously. They've made light appear to move forward and backward in time simultaneously. Now, come on! How cool is that? Except, of course, time travel is like aliens. As If it looks like aliens, it's never aliens. If it looks like time travel, it's never time travel. But still. Let's do the 
what exactly has been achieved? It is actually quite significant, but not in the way you might think. Essentially, what we've got here is <clears throat> experiment that involved putting a, a photon, which is a particle of light, because light is a particle and a wave, and no, I don't understand that really either. Taking a photon, putting it into a superposition, which effectively means it can be in two places at once. And no, I don't understand that either. This is a branch of physics that I think most people don't understand. I have to read these words and then just nod and assume that the person who's telling me these things knows what they're talking about. Now, they did this thing. It's all to do with quantum entanglements and all of that stuff. I honestly don't understand the experiment. They split a, fo a photon along a superposition of two separate paths through a crystal. I understand what all of those words mean. I don't know what that sentence means. While the superimposed photon moved in a regular manner through the crystal, another path was also devised to change the photon's polarisation. That is to say, where it points in space. I think I understand that. It made it appear as though the photon was travelling backwards in time. I'm, I just have to accept that. Anyway, the scientists then recombined the superimposed photons by making them move through another crystal. They then measured the polarisation of the photon and found a quantum interference pattern, which, they tell me, is made up of light and dark stripes that would only be possible if the photon were moving both backwards and forwards in time at the same time. Now, that all just made my head hurt, and I genuinely don't know what any of it means. But I will take on board the conclusion, which is these findings could allow for more enhanced processing in quantum computing. as it demonstrates that time flips could be linked to reversible logic gates to allow simultaneous com computation in both directions. That's all very complicated, but I can, having done IT at school and you know, having the, the, the logic gate thing, I understand that a bit. I can see how that would be useful, but what I'm not going to accept it is, is time travel. I don't think it's time travel. Uh, it could, they also tell me. Uh, help in the search for a, a unified theory of quantum gravity that marries the general theory of re relativity with the principles of quantum mechanics. Because at the moment, general re relativity says that quantum mechanics isn't a thing. But quantum mechanics is a thing because people are doing it. And now my head hurts really hard, and I think I want to stop thinking about science for a minute. But I did, even though I don't really understand one word in ten of what I've just said, I wanted to bring that news to you because it does open some possibilities if if they truly have moved light back in time could have implications not just for computing but for other things too so we'll see i mean as far as i'm concerned time travel to be real time travel has to involve either a phone booth or a delorean and this involved neither of those things although i suppose the photon could have come from the flashy light on top of the TARDIS or the headlamps of the, of the DeLorean, I suppose. But anyway, yeah, that story might explain why we haven't done so many science stories of late. Because honestly, so much of what is happening in science right now is either incomprehensible or simply not credible. And I think this one was both. But, you know, good luck to the scientists from around the world. This is an, an international collaboration, they tell me. Good luck to those scientists. I hope that whatever it is they're doing, turns out they wanted it.
And with that, I'm going to go and rest my head and um, move on. And so we are going to hit you with a little bit of breaking news. Uh, This is news that has broken since I started recording this show. I started recording this show on uh, Monday the 12th of December. It's now Thursday the 15th of December and breaking news has done broken because we have heard about Superman specifically. We have heard from Henry Cavill about Superman. Now, if you recall, Henry Cavill announced on social media a couple of weeks ago that he was going to return as Superman. He's there as a cameo in the end credit sequence of the Black Adam movie, which was you know dropped in much later. Everything looked set for Superman's return. Cavill even pulled out of the Netflix series The Witcher, in which he played the title character Garot. And there was speculation that that was to clear his diary for a return as the Man of Steel. Sadly, it is not to be. Uh, today, Cavill has announced, again, I've, I saw this on social media. I don't know exactly where he initially announced it. But he says, and I quote, I have just had a meeting with James Gunn and Peter Safran, and it's sad news, everyone. I will, after all, not be returning as Superman. After being told by the studio to announce my return back in October, prior to their hire, this news isn't the easiest, but that's life. The changing of the guard is something that happens. I respect that. James and Peter have a universe to build. I wish them and all, I wish them and all involved with the new universe the best of luck and the happiest of fortunes. For those who've been by my side through the years, we can mourn for a bit, but then we must remember, Superman is still around. Everything he stands for still exists, and the examples he sets for us are still there. My turn to wear the cape has passed, but what Superman stands for never will. It's been a fun ride with you all, onwards and upwards. Which, I have to say, is showing rather a lot of dignity and class, given that he'd been told he was coming back, and B... He loves the role. He loves being Superman. And I am genuinely gutted for him. I'm also, I get it. I get it. They've got a universe to build. But I can't quite fathom looking at the reaction to Cavill announcing he was coming back as Superman and looking at all the goodwill and the outpouring of affection and love for Cavill in that role that there was, and there was, And then going, yeah, yeah, junk that. Uh, The new broom may well wish to sweep clean, but equally, you do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I, 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 I genuinely, I think this is a mistake. I am not a fan of the movies that Cavill has played Superman in to this point. I am on record as really not enjoying Snyder's take. But I would have loved to have seen Cavill Take the character in a different direction. Do something different with it. As he says, it is not to be. Superman is not our toy. Superman is DC's toy. And they have given Superman to James Gunn and Peter Safran to play with. And until they give it up, it's their game. So all I can say is whatever they do with Superman next, it had better be good. Because if it isn't, they will have dropped the ball in a pretty spectacular way. It's not all bad, though. Gunn has said that the reason Cavill is not returning as Superman is that 
his take on Superman, his initial take on Superman at least, is going to be to look at an earlier part of Superman's life. And obviously, Henry Cavill can't play young Superman because he's not that young. That does leave the door open for Cavill to come back as Superman if they do a grown-up Superman movie again. So there is that possibility. And Gunn has also said that they are you know, actively engaged with casting Cavill in a different role in the DC universe. So, you know, it, it, it's not all bad. Uh, also good news is that um, the Superman project helmed by Taneshi Coates is also still in development. That's not been scrapped. So more Superman is coming, just with a different dude in the tights. Gunn has also said that he's quite keen to see Ben Affleck do some directing in the DCU. So that's a thing that's been said. I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I am going to try and keep an open mind. We do have reasons to trust James Gunn. So I'm I'm going to go with his vision for now. Uh, and I promise I won't moan about anything until it's actually happened. So there you go. Time very quickly for a couple of comics recommendations, I think. It is the case that in the run up to Christmas, the the number of issue ones that are coming out kind of drops off a little bit. It does not dry up completely. And we have got a couple of fairly high profile issue ones to recommend to you this week, both from the mythical house of ideas, Marvel Comics itself. First up, we have the Invincible Iron Man issue one, uh, which Marvel also helpfully points out is actually the 651st issue of the Invincible Iron Man, because everything has to start with a new number, but also they want to keep the old numbers because Marvel. Anyway, uh, by this point, Iron Man is a very well-established character, and no longer, I think, a D-lister at Marvel. He was a D-lister for years. And then, of course, Robert Downey Jr. happened, and suddenly Iron Man is kind of an A-list character at Marvel again. So this issue finds Tony in introspective mood. Looking back over his life, uh, how he made his fortune and lost his fortune and what it is to be a superhero and to have led the Avengers and all of that kind of stuff. And then something explosive happens and Tony Stark's world is thrown into chaos again. Now, I'm not going to tell you what happens because that's a spoiler. I am going to tell you that a new villain has been introduced and we know nothing about them. So I can't spoil that villain because we know literally nothing. Who are they? Where are they from? What is their beef with Tony Stark? Because they clearly have one, I guess, will be revealed. Uh, this is a cracking first issue. Uh, if you have never read Iron Man before, this is a great place to jump on. Uh, if, if you know Iron Man backwards, it doesn't waste time giving you a massive origin story. It's, it's there if you genuinely don't know, but it's it's just really, really great. And the cliffhanger at the end um, really, really makes its point. So highly recommended The Invincible Iron Man, issue one, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Juan Figueri and uh, letters by Brian Valenza. It's £4.80. I had to think about that because we changed our prices. £4.80 if you buy it off the shelf. If you pre-ordered it, it's £4.50. Uh, if you set up a standing order, it'll be £4.50 at Destination Venus. Uh, 
Other prices at other comic shops may vary. You might want to check with your local comic store. Then, also from Marvel, we have Miles Morales' Spider-Man issue one. Just like Tony Stark, Miles is also feeling a little bit introspective in this opening issue. If you're not familiar with Miles Morales, you should be. Miles is much younger than Peter Parker. He's still a kid, still a teenager at high school. And he was bitten not by a radioactive spider, but by a genetically modified spider, because that's what people were scared of at the time Miles was created. And like Peter Parker, he developed spider-like powers. But in addition to be able to shoot webs and crawl up walls and be alerted to danger, Miles also has what he calls venom blasts, which I think are actually supposed to be electromagnetic stings kind of things. Uh, and he can also do camouflage really well. He can't actually turn himself invisible, but he can make sure that you don't actually notice him. And he's had a tough time of it of late. Again, this is a great jumping on point. You don't need to know what's been happening to, to Miles in the previous run. But he's had a tough time and he's you know trying to deal with being a good guy and you know making sure that he always is a good guy, always doing the right thing. In an environment where as a young costumed vigilante, he's kind of in the sights of law enforcement and his teachers are fed up of him always being late to class and all of that kind of stuff. He's got stuff going on. And this is all you know very, very tricky for him. It's, you know, it's difficult to negotiate being a teenager. I mean, it's a long time since I was one, but I vaguely remember. And so you've got all of that going on alongside the fact that, again, we as readers know that somebody has it in for him. Somebody is gunning for Miles Morales. He doesn't know it. And we don't know who she is. Uh, but we know she knows all about him. That she's not a stereotypical villain. The story goes out of its way to show us what a good person she is. So that's a story that's going to develop interestingly, I think. Again, it's brilliantly written by uh, Cody Ziegler. Uh, great art from Federico... Vincentini? Vincentini, I think is how I'm pronouncing that. Sorry if I'm getting that wrong. Uh, with colour by Brian Valenza and letters by Corey Petty. It's a great, again, a great jumping on point. If you've never read Miles Morales but were kind of interested, this is a great place to start. So again, highly, 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 highly recommended. And we're running out of time, so I guess we will leave the comics there. Although, if you can get into Destination Venus, we have got a rack for you this week, I have to tell you. It's a great week for comics. So if you're passing the Everyman Cinema, drop in and say hello. No purchase necessary. We just like talking about comics, really. So anyway, yes, moving on. And before we go, just time to take a quick peek at the Geek Community Notice Board. Uh, I note that there are things happening at the Secret Lair over in Hornbeam Park. I'm not going to list everything. Uh, check out their timetable on their social medias. And the same goes for Geek Retreat on Oxford Street in Harrogate. Uh, they have got something happening now, literally every day, seven days a week. There's some kind of event or meetup. You've got your Friday night magics and all that kind of stuff. Again, far too numerous for me to, to fit in the time we've got available. So swing over to the Geek Retreat social medias. Uh, they're on Facebook. I think they might be on Twitter. I'm pretty sure they're on Instagram. Uh, so check out Geek Retreat. Just Google Geek Retreat Harrogate and Google the secret lair Harrogate and you will find all the information that you need. You are a child or if you are the parent of a child, which frankly, if you listen to this is more likely. And you are around in Harrogate on Saturday, the 
17th of December, that's this coming Saturday, if you are listening on the day this drops, you can come to the Everyman Cinema and you can have your kid take part in the Geek Kids Quiz. That's at two o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday. Last about an hour and a half or so. Good fun afternoon for the kids. Uh, great questions, great prizes. Uh, it's going to be a good afternoon for all involved. And if you are not a child, but you are in fact a grown-up, and you are thinking that that is age discrimination, and you want to go to a quiz too, well, you can. Relax. Sunday night. That's Sunday the 18th of December. The Geek Pub Quiz Christmas Edition. Actually, I don't know whether they're doing Christmas questions. I bet they do. The original and best Geek Pub Quiz is coming back to Major Tom Social, the youth club for grown-ups, on the Ginnell in Harrogate, 7.30. Don't be late. You don't want to miss a second of a Geek Pub Quiz. It is a fantastic night. Possibly while you're there, try one of Major Tom's Pizzas. They are awesome. And that is not a paid endorsement. That's just an endorsement because Major Tom's Pizzas are awesome. Oh, I suppose I should say, since it's not a paid endorsement, other pizzas are available. Some of those are awesome too. And that's it. That is the Geek Community Notice Board for this week. If you have a geeky event or thing that is happening in Harrogate or elsewhere, we are not just in Harrogate. Okay, the podcast version of this show goes out across the globe. Now, I don't know why they listen either, but they do. We have listeners in America, for goodness sake. Wherever you are, if you have a geeky event that you would like to plug, just tell me. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the best way to do that. We are on the social medias as well. Uh, We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and we're on Twitter for as long as it either exists or we can stand it. There is no charge. I do not charge for these plugs. I'm not allowed to charge for these plugs, but I wouldn't even if I was. I'm just here to spread the geeky love, so let us know what's going on. That email address, info at destinationvenus.co.uk, is also the place to send your comments, your suggestions for things you'd like us to talk about on the show, your requests for us to review things, whatever it is. You've got something to say? Tell us. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. We are here to serve the geek. But that is just about all we have time for right now. We will, of course, be back next week. And next week, we are going to start to get into the Christmas spirit, because next week, if you can believe it, is the last show before Christmas. And the week after that, it's the last show of 2022. Where does the time go? I don't know. It's a problem. So next week, uh, we may not quite have all of the usual segments, because we are going to devote some time to celebrating Christmas, and what it means to be a Christmassy geek. The week after... We're going to have a bit of a geeky review of the year. So if you have some suggestions for things you would like to see included in that, let us know. Because honestly, 2022 has been a really long year. And I'm sure there must be a whole bunch of stuff that I have simply forgotten about. So if there's something that you would like to see included, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to send it. But for now, that really is all we have time for. All that remains for me to do is to tell you that geeking with Destination Venus It's a production of Venus Rising Media and is proudly made in North Yorkshire. But for now, that really is it. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, stay geeky, and remember, if you're shopping for Christmas, please shop local. We thank you. You guys, you take care.